welcome back to another episode of Dad Teaches Me About Wine, the podcast that teaches you as much as you pretend to know about wine. I am Madeline Quigley. And I'm Matt Quigley. got this new thing on my phone this pop pop socket i'm obsessed with it i can't stop playing with it okay <laughs> all right so we have a really exciting episode four for you today what well i don't know how exciting it is but it, at least it is the next episode i think it's pretty exciting we have an exciting topic there's wine in front of us that's always good news all right so today's um topic dad what is today's topic Episode four. Yes, it goes back to the primary rule of real estate, which is location, location, location. So yes, episode four, location, location, location. As always, we are drinking as we talk. And dad, do you want to let me know, LMK, what we are sipping on? This is Herman Weimer Riesling 2013. This is a Finger Lakes Riesling, Finger Lakes, New York. It is um, from the uh, Seneca Lake, the largest and deepest of all the Finger Lakes, named um, very close to my daughter's name, Magdalena Vineyard. Mm-hmm. Yep, my Madeline, that's Magdalena. Magdalena, yes. I think Finger Lakes Riesling is something I like. said last episode. I was like, I don't really like. Do you remember that? Yeah, that's why I poured this. Yeah, he's getting back at me. But also, like, I don't really know what I'm talking about, is I think if you've listened to any of this so far, you might realize. Cool. Well, I guess I'll take a sip. It's pretty cold. You, you stuck this in the freezer, huh? It's too cold. So let me just take a little sidebar, first of all. Clink. Oh, yeah. Always. Yeah. To a good episode. So sidebar, wine serving temperature. Um, white wine typically should be served at above ref- refrigerator temperature. So something on the order of like 45 degrees is uh, optimum. The problem is that when wine gets too cold, you really can't taste it. You lose all the subtlety. There's very little volatile elements. There's nothing to smell. The other side of the coin, which a lot of people miss, is that red wine should not be served at room temperature. This is a big no-no. Really? Yes, really. Red wine should be served at cellar temperature, which is between 55 and 60 degrees Fahrenheit. What's room temperature? Room temperature is typically 70 to 72 degrees Fahrenheit. And stuff that's been sitting behind the bar, you know, for a day or a week is going to be room temperature. And that's really not the right temperature to drink red wine. Red wine was supposed to be consumed at room temperature when room temperature was a castle and it was oh, you know, yeah. in the high 60s or something but anyway oh cool stone walls yeah game. the reality is that red wine needs to be something on the order of about 60 degrees otherwise it tends to be kind what, of what so you you have one of the i mean it, how big of a difference is like that that 10 degrees makes a huge difference makes a tremendous difference really so what you're going to want to do is pop the wine into the refrigerator for a half an hour or an ice bucket for about 10 minutes before you serve. Before you... But 
opening the, re- I don't know if we want to get into this because this has absolutely nothing to do with location, but I also know you're supposed to like re- let your red wine breathe. Is there like a quick tip on that? Is that a Well, breathing thing? It has to do with oxidizing the wine and trying to break down the, the tannins. Uh, most of the time, just simply opening the bottle isn't going to do much. So you're, you're much better off uh, either selecting the appropriate wine that doesn't need it what and can be it? consumed right away. How do you right know away. if it needs it? Well, how old it is and what kind of wine oh, it gee, is. I thought I just would put like a, a quick stamp on there, like uh, oxidize me. No. They like a don't. Mr. Yuck sticker, but instead... Yeah, of... yeah they don't do that. <sighs> so you have to know beforehand. That's, that's why you need to listen to all these podcasts. Why can you Can you just let all of them breathe for a little bit and just let it be? Yes, you can. This will not hurt any red wines. Mm, I found a shortcut. And the best way to do it is actually in a decanter because you need a wider surface area. Yeah. Because the breakdown is going to occur on the the surface. Okay. So if you have a bottle and you open the cork, all you have is this little tiny surface at the top. Yeah. Where the action is occurring. Whereas in a decanter, you have a much larger surface. He has this decanter that literally looks like a mouse. Isn't it called the mouse? Or do I just call it the mouse? I guess so. That's one of the decanters I own. Yeah, he's yeah. got a couple. Right. So We or, should get back to location. Yeah, we right. should get back to location. But basically, if you want to look fancy with your red wine, pop it in a nice bucket for 10 minutes with the top off before you serve it to someone. But don't get any water in there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Back to location, 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 location. What we've kind of hinted at many times on this show so far in all the three episodes has been that location is the most important the well you know i look at it really as uh, part of the triad you know the uh, the stool in which a good wine sits okay or stands so you've got location you've got the grape and you've got the producer so those are the three things that actually determine what the wine is going to be okay Producer, grape, location. Correct. Got it. So location is really fundamental. And what makes location important? The The French have a wonderful word for it, which you probably heard and didn't understand, which is terroir. I mean, they're not idiots. Like, that one's... Well, people have heard the word, but it, it means a lot. And what it means is not only location... Not just dirt. Not just, no, not just location in the sense of a GPS coordinate, but also the ground, and the type of soil, the drainage, and also how it faces, whether it faces the sun as it rises, faces the sun as it sets, or doesn't see the sun at all. Good wine is usually made in a situation where it sees a lot of sun. Because basically you're converting the miracle of the energy from the sun into the grape. Yeah. Is there a way it could never see the sun? It's indoors? Uh, no. It's north-facing. There are no north-facing wines, period. Really? They wouldn't exist? Almost all great wines face west. Occasionally, they'll face east or south. So it's not even right. just it's not even just like location being like Northern California. It's location being like this really good hill in Northern California because it faces the right direction. It has good drainage, and the and the soil is uh, oh, dumb. and then the sea breezes. You forgot. Oh the my sea gosh! Breezes. And there's like so, so it's when you say location, people don't just mean like oh, I mean Bordeaux in France. You mean like the best part 
of the a hill of the riverbank in Bordeaux. That's why it all boils down to terroir, because that encompasses all these myriad of things that go into a great, great wine. Is there a terroir grading system that people go around and give areas like a one to ten? No. Okay. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Yeah. You, you, you have to do this place by place. All right. Um, you have to, <laughs> there is no cheat sheet. You have to spend years making the wine to only be like, well, that sucked. Like, don't want to drink that again. All right. So you, would a good winemaker know beforehand, like seeing a place like, oh, this is going to be good? Or do you literally have to grow the wine, produce it, age it, and then try? Well, you, you need to understand that most of the wine that's produced is produced in areas that have produced wines for a long period of time. So there's a history of where the wine has been produced. It takes a real explorer or idiot to try to make wine in an area where it hasn't been made before. Oh, really? Yes. When is the last time you know of that someone did that and it worked out well? Oh, oh. Gary Pisoni. Aw, this is actually a good one. So everyone's wondering what, why you all of a sudden lit up when I said Gary Pisoni. And it's because Gary Pisoni is a winemaker, wine producer in the Santa Lucia Highlands in Monterey, California. And he basically established the Santa Lucia Highlands AVA, the American Vintacultural Area. When? Uh, back 25 years, 25, 30 years ago. And now uh, Santa Lucia Highlands Pinot Noir and Chardonnay are some of the most sought-after wines in the United States. What was his family's property before it was... Uh, he grew lettuce. Oh, they were growing lettuce, and then yeah, he was yeah, like... Yeah, they, they, they were in the valley, in the Salinas Valley, growing basically lettuce crops, cucumbers and things in the valley. And he had this notion that he wanted to produce wine, and went to France. The uh, story is that he smuggled a bunch of cuttings. I was going to say some clippings. <laughs> yeah, some cuttings from a very famous, probably the most famous Burgundy vineyard in the world called Domaine Romani Conti, or as oh, we say course. in the business, DRC. DRC, yeah, DRC, I know. and he supposedly brought them in in his pants. Mm. And that supposedly is the basis of his vineyard in... Uh, uh, in the Santa Lucia Highlands. Okay, uh, there's so many questions I could go with with that, but I'm just going to say, all right, there you go. You have answered my question. So, but I I guess I could go... So you say that people continue to grow grapes in areas that have been growing grapes for a long time so that they know they're a good area, but how are those, especially in a place like America, where we weren't always growing grapes... But in Europe, they've literally been growing grapes in those places for centuries. Or thousands of years. Okay. Or millennia, yes. Uh-huh. So... In the U.S., how did they figure it out? Yeah. Well, they tried to do it by science. So there are a number of formulas that were developed based out of uh, one of the most uh, preeminent vinicultural schools in the country, which is University of California... Davis. Okay. So UC Davis sort of became the go-to uh, word in terms of what you could grow where. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Yes. So these were... 
using based, science. Right, which means that sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Yeah. So, for instance, the Santa Lucia Highlands, which we just talked about, which has become world famous for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, which is typically what we call a cold weather grape, or at least cool weather grape, mm-hmm. and we've covered this in prior discussions. Episode three, baby, check yeah. it out. UC Davis looked at the temperature chart and said, no, 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 this is hot. You should be growing cab, and you should be growing uh, Syrah, you should be growing Semillon. These are all what are termed hot weather grapes. However, what they didn't take into account... Dem sea breezes. Dem sea breezes that come in at noon, almost on the dot, dot every day. And all of a sudden, you get this huge breeze coming in through the Salinas Valley off the Pacific Coast. And they couldn't, and there was no way that you could account for that just looking at high and low temperatures. So Gary Pisoni was like, haha. LOL got you, UC Davis. Well, I think it was more like, I don't think you know what you're talking about. I'm going to do this anyway. Sounds cool. And you know what? He did a good job. It worked. It worked out for him. It worked out for him. So how can you start to build a general knowledge of wine locations? Should you be pairing it with the type of grape varietal or should you be pairing it? I guess, how would you start to gather a knowledge of wine location? Because for me, I can start to try to remember things, but I don't know if I should be paying too attention to the varietal or I should be paying attention to something else. Well, I think it's a combination of both. I think that um, the varietal follows the climate. Mm-hmm. So if you understand the location and the climate, then you'll understand what varietals ought to follow. But because of all the microclimates and the odd way that things have, like like in California, it's difficult to know in general what is going to work. Didn't you say Santa Barbara also has cool weather grapes? Right, exactly. Santa Barbara is a beautiful Southern California location, sunny, warm all the time, except that it grows cool weather grapes because if you look at a topographical map, as I do all the time, there's this weird shift right at Santa Barbara where the mountain range doesn't run north-south. And all of a sudden it runs east-west. So this opens up a huge corridor to allow cold air to come in. And in that area, you can grow all these so-called cool weather grapes. So when I start paying attention to wine and I, I try something that I like, should I try to find other wines from that area? Or should I try to find other bottles in that varietal from different areas and kind of compare? What's going to be... Yeah, it's a different way of approaching your education. I think that the most logical thing to do is to explore similar grapes by different producers in the same area. Okay, that's a good... So in any given area, the producers will typically demonstrate the entire orchestra of what you can produce in that area. Mm -hmm. So one producer may focus in on the violins and another producer is doing the the bass or or whatever. This is a music analogy now. Well, I don't want to stretch it too 
too much. So they're all focusing. One guy might focus really much on the way the grapes are pressed and the other guys maybe the way he ages it is his focus. Right. And you may not know what their focus is, but all you know is that, you know, John Smith produces this wine in this area. Mr. Jones produces a different wine. And I've tried both of them and I may like one versus the other. And it may just be the way they make the wine or the vineyard may be slightly different. Mm -hmm. One may have a little more, you know, ocean influence, blah, blah, blah. So if I decide Mm. I really like this Syrah from Santa Barbara. No, that's not something. Is that a cold weather? What's a cold weather being grown in Santa Barbara? Is Syrah cold weather? No, it's, well, in the United States, it's typically warm weather. So it's going to be either Chard or Pinot. Okay, I really like this Pinot from Santa Barbara. A one idea would be to find another producer making Pinot with grapes from Santa Barbara to just kind of see if there's a difference or which one you like more just to kind of... You're going to want to expand your level of what you find acceptable or what you find desirable. So you will have a good experience with a particular wine and that ought to spark your interest in the varietal, in the location, and in the producer. Now the easiest thing to vary within that equation is the producer. Yeah. So you look at different producers in the same area to get an idea of whom you like. So for starting to learn more about location is key. It is fundamental. Yeah. And if you want to become serious about wine, then there's no way around it. Enology or the knowledge of wine is really applied geography. Mm-hmm. It is the basis. What I would suggest to everyone listening is that they get a basic wine atlas so that when they drink wine and they don't know where it's from the first thing they do is look it up okay so that they're able to pigeonhole well they can do it on the internet but there's some great books written by hugh johnson shout out hugh johnson we're Uh, sponsored by hugh johnson actually (laughs) this is all Yeah. yeah right uh no hugh johnson i think is retired or not working a lot anymore but um He wrote a book called The Atlas of Wines. It's gone through probably 10 or 12 different editions. And the great thing about it is you really don't need the most up-to-date edition because if you're going to learn about wine, you just need basic knowledge about the geography. So even if you're two or three editions old, it's okay. The wine didn't move. It's still there. You can get a secondhand copy on the cheap. Yes. Um, And in the last number of years, he's been writing the book with another person called Jancis Robinson. Do you have one of those in here? We record in my dad's library, P.S. We have one of those. Even though I'm not somebody who uh, necessarily recommends books, I think that a great wine atlas is... You recommend uh, books all the time. I recommend books to read and then throw them away. (laughs) But in terms of keeping a book... Oh, okay. Um, a wine atlas is invaluable because it's always great to drink a wine if you don't know where it's from to be able to actually 
Well, Open a book and point your finger. Does it have where did all it the producers from? in it, or what is what is in the wine atlas? The the regions, or okay, so we're gonna we take could do a, a whole episode on this, I guess. Uh, yes, but let me just take a little sidebar here in terms of what we're really talking about. Virtually every country has some sort of regulatory body that allows producers to put a particular name on a label in terms of where something comes from. Yeah. But what does this have to do with the book? What this has to do with the book is that those locations are all specified. In the book. Within the book. And you're able to recognize. Right. And within all those locations, there are even single vineyards. So if you get a Barolo that has a vineyard name on it, you can open the book and you know... You can look up that. You can look up because I was going to say like the five acres that this came from. I was going to say what part of the label am I looking at in this book? And this book covers the world. Yes. This guy must have been busy. He was very busy. Okay. It was so, a life's work. I have my wine. I'm like, ooh, this is good. I want to know more about it. Pull out my book that some guy on a podcast convinced me to buy. I look at my label. What part of the label am I going to look up in this book? First is the country. What if you don't know? It'll be on the label. It always tells you the country of origin. Okay. But the next leap is the locale. Mm-hmm. So you may have to go to Google Map to figure out where it was produced from. And in Europe, the main name on the label will usually be the locale. So it will scream out Barolo. So what did you do before the internet? You had to read a lot and know about this. Yeah, they didn't make it easy, huh? No. So then you take the locale. Okay, so let's say it says Brunello. So Brunello is a area just south of Tuscany, which produces red wines. So first I'd go to Italy. Right. It says Italy on the back of the bottle. Yeah, got it. And then you go to Brunello. And then you go to... The producer. I was going to say the grape. No. Because the grape is specified. How? So the producers don't change that often. Well, they'll add a few new ones. Like, but, but the good ones have been there forever. Okay. Because that's, that's what confuses me. Like, it, I find it crazy that they have specific vineyards and stuff in there. Like, for example, I always bring up this cupcake winery. Like, cupcake winery has to be new. Like, no one would have called it that. Like, that's because cupcakes are in trend. Am I wrong? Stop. Cup, cupcake is not is not specified by any area. They are a producer without a locale. Okay. So they're like, hey, try our American Chardonnay. They're like two buck chuck. Okay. They buy grapes. We're not going to be sponsored by cupcake anytime soon. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, cupcake. <laughs> but they buy grapes from whomever... But it doesn't belong to any specific area. And that's what gets back to the first commandment of location. Mm -hmm. Is that when you look at the label, it will tell you where the wine comes from. And the more specific it is, down to a particular vineyard name, the more likely you'll be getting a, a good wine. Couldn't someone just game the system and put all these specifics on there that don't really mean anything? Yes, and then they would go to jail. Really? They, oh, yeah. You can't put something on there if it doesn't really mean anything. Like, if I grew some grapes in the backyard and were like, Pittsburgh's finest, 
Quigley Vineyard, you know, single vineyard, good because, stuff. Because the AVA wouldn't mean anything. If you grew grapes here, the AVA would simply be United States. So I couldn't put anything more specific than the U.S.? Right. Then oh. if, uh, that if you, grow, if you grew grapes here, they would be United States. I, but I couldn't even say Western Pennsylvania. No, because it's not an AVA. Oh, you're not allowed to nothing. put the, I, You're not allowed to like put something on there just for fun. Correct. So you may produce the world's greatest wine in our backyard. In our backyard, but guess what? It would be called wine from the United States. But what if I got someone out here and was like, "Check this out." Well, unless you convince the people from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms to make Fox Chapel an AVA, this would still be wine from the United States. Madeline Quigley's wine from the U.S. Yes. Yeah. Uh, all right. So I guess that is kind of a really good rule of thumb. The most specific wine you can find is going to be better than, you know, wine from planet Earth. So corporate wine like Cupcake or Yellowtail or whatever... They're really not worried about whether somebody doesn't like the product or not. They're just producing literally millions of bottles of product. So is a, for example, yellowtail or barefoot type of wine going to taste anything like a very... What is the main difference going to be? Is there going to be a lack of body or structure in a yellowtail Chardonnay versus a Chardonnay from the Santa Lucia Highlands? What's the- well, it would be the difference between listening to a high school orchestra play Beethoven's Fifth versus the New York Philharmonic. Some high schoolers are... Right. They'll get through it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, you, you will lose all the subtlety and... Yeah, it's Chardonnay. But that's all it is. It's yeah. Chardonnay. Mm. Now, this wine has actually warmed up a little bit so what are you thinking about this oh what does it tell me about the finger lakes no what does it tell you about where it was grown um well it is not that sweet it's sweet it's actually pretty sweet damn it i really think that (laughs) i've got a cold you know and i just yeah yeah yeah. i can't really excuses excuses i don't know dad i think i'm really bad i was first gonna say it doesn't have a lot of flavor but you're also making a face at that so i don't know if i'm gonna win this one it tastes like it doesn't have a lot of like oaky flavors or anything oh none at all okay all right yeah, it. You it, hit that one. I got that. It doesn't have any like flavors like that. This is painful what right I'm, now for me. Please <laughs> say something. Sorry. Okay, I'll, I'll step in. So, as a Riesling, in general, Rieslings tend to be uh, another cool weather grape, even beyond. Those Chardonnay. are some cool grapes. Well, no cold weather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even beyond Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, so when you get even into colder climates you get into things like um, Riesling. Can I ask a question? Of course. What is it about the Finger Lakes that make this cold weather climate? Like we've got a do we have a cold climate here in Pittsburgh? And we've Pretty got much. and yes. we've and we've got some rivers. What yes. about 
New York <clears throat> versus Pittsburgh makes the Finger Lakes an AVA and Pittsburgh somewhere where you wouldn't grow wine. Are we just building houses on land we could be growing grapes? Yeah, that's a excellent fundamental question. And some of it has to do with what people are willing to experiment with. Yeah. So a number of years ago, there were a couple of pioneers who were willing to experiment in the Finger Lakes and were able to produce wines that were at least quaffable. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, you could grow grapes in Pittsburgh. They, again, would probably have to be cool weather grapes like Rieslings and the like. But in a town like Pittsburgh, the real estate is probably worth more than, the wine. than what you would make in planting grapes for a very mediocre wine. Do you think the Finger Lakes wines are mediocre? Or do you think they've had more time to hone in the craft? I think at best, they are good wines. Mm -hmm. I think that the vast majority of Finger Lake wines are mediocre wines. And it's not... A reflection on the winemakers, it's a reflection on the fact that they're trying to grow grapes in an area that is very much right on the limit of what can be done in terms of uh, climate. Well, I think on that note, um, uh, we can wrap up this wonderful episode, episode four, location, location, location. I think we've given a good uh, just introduction at least emphasized how important location is when it comes to wine. Any final notes f from, y from you? Again, it's a knowledge of geography. You will never go wrong by learning geography when it comes to wine. You will, it will help you when you open that wine list at the, at the restaurant. Oh my gosh, dad, I, oh, yes, I know you sent me the, uh, you see the thing on the yeah. at dad help yeah. there or there's another one this week i spent 50 dollars on a bottle of wine at a bar and it was the cheapest one and you had no idea what you were buying i was the cheapest one that's why i was buying it, it was, i'm surprised you didn't call me i i mean that was you couldn't have helped me in that moment believe unless me, you could have haggled with the guy to sell it to me for less money believe me your brother has called me when he's look, opened a wine list. so when you I, I i could start a business you know wine list <laughs> consulting at the last moment, what do I do? Yeah, oh, yeah a mindless tech service. You should. Uh, speaking of which, if you have any uh, reader questions, suggestions, um, even, you know, corrections, uh, feel free to email us. Dad teaches me about wine at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram for all sorts of updates and pictures. And we usually post a picture of the bottle that we're drinking, if you're curious about it. Um, on our Instagram at Dad Teaches Me About Wine. Other than that, I think we're probably good. Yeah? Well, cheers to that. Bye.